Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Professor Janine O'Flynn. In this segment, we take a look at the different country responses to COVID and what we think the impacts might be on higher education as a sector. Welcome to Public Service Podcasting, your inside look into the world of public service scholarship and practice. When people look to Australia, um, certainly just now, they're 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 looking in these kind of COVID times and, and seeing very different outcomes. Um, I think, you know, Australia have had something like nine hundred yeah. deaths in total. We've been having over a thousand per day for um, months now. We're getting mm-hmm. close to one hundred and twenty thousand deaths mm-hmm. in total. And I mean, I guess that there's probably all sorts of of reasons for that, but I do wonder how much of it is that there is an a, an a evidence based policy, or or there's a there's a an informed policy making mm. process within Australia that maybe willingness to listen, maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no question in the state of Victoria where I am, which is has been the source of most of the cases and. Almost mm. all of the deaths that we've had in Australia have been in in Victoria because we had a, you know, we had a huge surge. We had the a big wave um, here in Victoria and went into complete lockdown for about four months, um, and we just have had another uh, what we call circuit breaker for five days, where the whole state was locked back down into what we call our stage four, which means you, know, you can leave the house for a couple of hours a day for exercise, you can go shopping, you can't go outside five kilometre radius, no one can come to your house and so on. And one of the things that's been really interesting in, um, I should say across all the jurisdictions of Australia, um, has been this absolute reliance on experts and evidence. And so there's no question that um, the the chief health officers across the different states have been extraordinarily influential in Victoria, um, you know, have made the big decisions about lockdown and, and so on, have all been driven um, by by the experts. And the Premier in Victoria um, does a presser nearly every day and um, and he will say, you know, this is what Brett's told me that we need to do and this is what we're going going to do. So it's a really fascinating experience for us here in in Australia to be watching what's going on in other parts of the world and to be saying um, we just can't believe some of the stuff that's going on. Now, at the same time, Australians are pretty anti-authority and so (laughs) (laughs) so they've all been... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's been very interesting to watch. And I remember doing I did an interview with um Colin Talbot last year, I think it was in about April, and for his series on government versus the virus. And I said to him, Look, the thing I'm most worried about is how long can Australians really be told what to do? And that that for us will be the the challenge. And I think in, in the state of Victoria where I am just this recent lockdown was met with just um, widespread despair. The, mm. It was palpable. The the emotion, the the just fatigue of it, um, you know, you've just had entire industries that have just been getting back onto their feet, you know, all hospitality, live music, 
all of these industries that have been decimated by Mm. a four-month shutdown, um, just the the outpouring of despair, which is something that is going to be really, really difficult to manage but something that's going to be fascinating as well to watch how government deals with that and how our public administration systems deal with this sense of... um, of despair that people have, not just, you know, job loss and so on, but this mm. this fatigue of being isolated for so long and, and so on is going to be really difficult. But we, you know, we're watching from afar saying, you know, we're happy to live on a big island in the middle of nowhere. And um, mm. but the restrictions here have been pretty remarkable. People need permits yeah. to leave Australia. I was going to ask the same thing, you know, the, the, do you think the rich anti-authoritarian streak that, that many Australians have is, or how do you think that's affected by Australian central and, and federal government's kind of desire to be quite authoritarian? You know, <laughs> your, your lockdowns have been actual lockdowns, whereas we yep. Brits have said, well, you've not really told us to do much, but we're still not going to do it anyway. Um, well, it's super interesting here because we have a federated system. So we've had at the start, um, at the start, the federal government said, um, we're going to create a new institution. We're going to call it National Cabinet and all of the, the leaders of states and territories and the federal government will create this new cooperative institution that will allow us to, to deal with this crisis. Now, that's super interesting because we already had one, which was called the Council of Australian Governments, but it was seen as being bureaucratic and unable to operate in this environment. And so we created a new one. Now, my comment at the time was, but it's still populated by the same people. So how is it going to operate any mm. differently? Um, but, you know, say la vie. Uh, so what was really fascinating was that this, this institutional innovation that happened almost immediately um, and but it was supposed to allow for a national approach, but also enable um, differences at the, the sort of subnational level. And we have had extreme differences. So the state of Victoria has been the most um, serious, and I, I don't mean the others weren't serious, but has had to deal with the most serious outbreaks, mainly. Um, due to the, the escaping of the virus from hotel quarantine. Um, mm. So we created this hotel quarantine system. It was, you know, there's a whole, we could talk about that for hours, but um, that's where the outbreak started and then spread into aged care. And so most of our deaths have come um, through the spread coming out of there and they've shown up all these cracks in um the private aged care system, so the majority of the deaths and infections that happened in aged care were in a privately run aged care system, not the state-run system. And um, the hotel quarantine outbreaks also raised this really fascinating question about the contracting out of security in those hotels. Mm. So, Mm. you know, on the one hand of government, we've had this ongoing sort of investigation and inquiry into the you know, subcontracting, exploitative um, practices of the security industry. And on the other side of government, there was a decision made, although that's another story, um, to engage that industry to protect us, the community, from the outbreak of coronavirus. So um, there's been a lot of differences between the different states and territories and the national government, and there's been some friction. So 
as it, as Victoria was in this extraordinarily, um, you know, authoritarian, it's being called, um, lockdown, hugely restricting, mostly people were very compliant. Um, the federal government was calling for the lockdown to be lifted as the Prime Minister was saying, let the kids go back to school. The Premier here was saying, no, we're not letting kids go back to school. Let's see, had these big tensions happening and um, other states have not followed Victoria's lead. They haven't had to because they didn't have the problems that we had here. And so they've been much more able to contain um, shorter lockdowns where they've had to happen. But the Victorian experience... Um, I think will be one that in sort of public admin and management world we'll study for a very long time. The failures, um, uh, the sort of unveiling of a whole range of capacity problems that, that we didn't really know about until we had to deal with it, as well as sort of what has worked in terms of relying on experts and being able to um, to respond and and do that. So people were really fearful, I think, over the last week here in Victoria that we were going to see a repeat of that that it was going to be a stress test for a system that had not coped previously and that we might not be able to cope with it and we'd all be back into this months-long lockdown again. And I think mm. people were, were very fearful of that um, last week when it was announced. I mean, it, it, I totally understand people's kind of concerns around that. I, I'm i in the category of clinically extremely vulnerable. Yeah. Um, we're coming up to, I think, in a week now, it will have been 12 months yeah. since I was last in my work office. Um, you know, being quite a hermit, but then I'm not sure that our degree of compliance has been anywhere near the same. You know, I, I talked to my, my brother lives just outside Melbourne, lives in Mornington. Yeah. Um, he married an Aussie and I've been talking to them and finding out but and you know it, it seems very clear that you know we the favorite phrase that you hear a lot is we're following the science and by following <laughs> i mean like walking 30 feet behind on their phone not really paying attention to it, sure, yeah. Um, yeah. I, um, I, and so i think i think what you put your finger on before Ian, about this <sighs> this desire um, pete murphy uh, often i hear him put like this said you know instead of it being about um evidence-based policy what we now have is policy-based evidence you know is uh, the policy should be this i.e we can keep horse racing open for a while because there's a couple of big races find me some evidence for that and if you can't find it well you know just make it up and yeah. it'll be fine um and so it, it is uh, we haven't i think we lack that mechanism that you that you were um pointing out ian and then that Janine, you've talked so eloquently about this desire to listen yeah. to and to go and seek the views and i think you know had that been um the case i, I think this would have been a very different lockdown yeah i mean the, the difference is extraordinary i mean one of the things that i was just thinking about janine as you were talking was this idea that you are aren't allowed to travel beyond a five mm. kilometer radius and i know from my father-in-law who also happens to be in mornington that that, that has been very very strictly uh, controlled um, and and policed, um, whereas you know for for me right now in Edinburgh we're, we've been told that we can exercise anywhere within our local authority area. Now my local authority of Edinburgh you know spans I don't know 15, 20, 20 miles. Um, if you look at the Highland Council area, it's got a, 
a total size of about 10,000 square miles. Um, so you can travel anywhere within that area in order to start your exercise, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and it's not really being policed particularly strongly, um, which, which seems, you know, I mean, it seems extraordinary. Um, but I guess in part, you know, as Russ was saying, this is maybe about listening. Um, but I do wonder how much of it is also about just the capacity of the state to actually to actually manage this. It's about operational capacity. Yeah. And one, one of the things that was fascinating here in, in Victoria, um, and I'm not far from where both of you have, have relations, I live living outside of Melbourne, I spend my time between the city and, and the beach, which is a lovely, mm. lovely way to, to live. But one of the things that happened um, here is that not only did Australia lock its external borders to the world, essentially, like there has been obviously some flow of people coming in and leaving, but it's essentially Australia is shut. And um, and so that was that was any um, that was a big decision to be made, and that was made very early on. Then what happened was within Australia, we started to see the states and territories start locking their borders to each other. So as Victoria went into this latest lockdown, um, you know, other states said um, we're locking our borders with Victoria because we don't want Victorians coming and spreading Corona into our into our state and territory. That's been going on for some months between different states shutting and closing borders and in introducing checks. In Victoria, what was even more extraordinary was that we had within state checkpoints. So I had to go into the city at some stage when we had what was called the Ring of Steel around Melbourne. And um, so there was different rules in different parts of, of the state. And I had to go through military checkpoints. So um, I think one of the things that's interesting about that is this notion of scale as well. So whilst you can travel all around the highlands and the islands, in, in terms of Australia, the scale of the geography is so different. I, I went to visit my brother and he said, oh, we're going to go out um, to this really like uh, this really nice pizzeria and um, innocent bystander. It's a lovely place, wine yard, pizzeria type place. And we drove for like an hour and 20 minutes for lunch. <laughs> Which, you know, is like me here in Liverpool <laughs> saying, we're going to go for lunch somewhere really nice. It's in Leeds. <laughs> Which, you know, it's just ridiculous. So, so for you guys to be locked down, I mean, that's pretty much like not being allowed out of your back garden. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, if you're in metropolitan Melbourne, then, you know, five kilometres is is a long way in a sense, right? And, um, but... But if you're in sort of regional area, then then that's different. And we had the imposition of those in the in the latest lockdown. Those rules we didn't have them last time. But um, yeah, I mean, people there was there was fascinating stories that ended up all over social media. Where particularly um, a story of one woman who who was caught exercising in another outside of her five kilometer radius, and um, she said, well, I got sick of walking the streets of my suburb, so I've come somewhere else to walk the streets of someone else's <laughs> suburb. And it was it was this, to- this total sort of um, shaming of that behaviour. I mean, it's the other thing, this sort of this weird, Australians have this weird combination of anti-authoritarianism as well as sort of dobbing behaviour where, yeah. you know, like I think, there's, I think there's more than 10 people in my neighbour's house, I'll ring the police to re- report it because they're not allowed to have them there or... Um, there's a party going on. I can hear it up the street. I'll ring the police to report it because it's illegal to have parties. And so there's this this weird sort of combination of of um, 
that we could call it civic duty or we could call it dobbing behavior, but uh, that people people police each other here, right? And um, there's a, a fair bit of that that goes on. Yeah, and I think we, I mean, it's fascinating the kind of difference in attitudes, particularly where you have a country like Australia and, you know, the UK that in some ways feel very similar, but actually the way that civic life kind of plays out is is, is enormously different. Um, and we, I think, we've been quite resistant to the notion of policing um, lockdown, particularly. Um you know, and there are lots of difficulties around this. You know, I've seen any number of conversations saying, you know, that it shouldn't be for outsourced security staff on, you know, probably not that much above minimum wage to be stopping all the people coming in and out of supermarkets and saying, well, why haven't you got a mask on? And can you tell me what your particular health condition is? Because, you know, being a jerk, it doesn't count. That doesn't exempt you. <laughs> Um, you know, I and you know, here's a terrible kind of classist comment. Um, I've heard people say that you know the the ratio or percentage of people wearing masks in Sports Direct is a lot lower than it is in Marks and Spencers or Waitrose or somewhere. You know, and there is a bit of a sense of. Um, I suppose a middle class angst about you know doing the right thing and making sure you comply with the rules and stuff. Um, and as easy as it is to complain or to, to criticise that, you also have to think, well, you know, lots of people have got really super precarious employment. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, you, 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 you've got to give people a bit of a break sometimes with some of these things. Yeah. Um, a quick question just on that then, though. Um, one of the real um, media problems I think we've had around it here has been in, in relation to universities, um, n- not helped by universities not wanting to say that students aren't welcome or not to come for fear of being sued and then just waiting for the government to tell students that they can't turn up Mm. somewhere which obviously they do about six weeks after they've actually arrived um and you know some some disastrous decisions like you know the university of manchester put like a metal fence around one of the halls because you know they had stories that people have been coming in and out and things and essentially barricaded in students overnight what what's it been like in higher education in australia um it, it, this is a, a really important question because higher education in australia will be decimated by COVID. We are highly reliant on um, international uh, students and Australia has always had an extraordinarily diverse um, student population. So one of the great things about um, working in in universities in Australia, I mean, firstly, they tend to be quite large, but what that means is that you have this extraordinary mix of students. So I would have, you know, if I'm teaching a regular class in my master's program at the University of Melbourne, you know, at least 50% of my students, sometimes 60, are from elsewhere. And that you have, and and you have this incredible diversity. So it's not like you have um, everybody comes from one country. You, you know, it would not be unusual for me to have 20 countries represented in a classroom, which is, you know, in our world, just extraordinary. Um, So, in terms of the, the sort of repercussions on a on a macro scale for Australia are going to be catastrophic for the higher education system, and we're starting um, to see that. There's an estimate that about seventeen thousand um, positions have already been lost in higher education across Australia, wow. um, and we have very highly casualised workforces in in the Australian mm. higher education system. So we have a, a real um, problem. 
with a, a very small, um, you know, sort of what we call continuing but others might call tenured positions and these extraordinarily large contingent workforces, um, many of who lost their jobs straight away during COVID. Um, universities in Australia have basically been closed for all of last year um, and the ones in Victoria in particular, um, you know, some of them were transitioning to moving back this semester for some teaching but not a lot. So we've, you know, last year basically everybody taught online um, and universities were closed. That was it. And um, so the University of Melbourne where I am has been basically closed all of last year. Mm, Haven't had students at all um, on physically on, on campus or um, at the university and the university has been running really skeleton um, just basically for labs that need to keep operating, including some of the labs who are working on corona and, and so on. But it's been, it, it has been and will continue to be decimating for Australia and we have um, vice-chancellors pleading essentially with um, the government to allow students to come back in because we have many thousands and thousands of our students who would have been expecting to come to the university or partway through their degree who are now in other parts, gone back to other parts of the world who can't come back. We mm. also have um, a, a real local tragedy with many international students who have been basically stuck in Australia mm. and mm. Um, because of their visas they may not be permitted to work. We've had entire industries where many of our students would be working, um, you know, as we often do as students in hospitality and so on, which were shut down um, mm. and no government support provided to to those people. So universities have been picking up some of that. Local governments have been picking up some of that support. Um, so we've got now this this extraordinary sort of challenge, not just in terms of the, you know, what, what do we do in the future, um, for sustainability of our institutions, but what does it mean for the communities of our institutions? Like what, what mm. does it mean for students who have been here, who came to Australia to study, who are basically stuck now without supports around them um, and this sense that it wasn't the government's job to do that. Now, we would have students, Australian students, who are in other parts of the world mm. who we would hope are not being treated like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the higher education scene in Australia, I think, is going to be pretty brutal for some time, and mm. um, and I think, you know, people are talking about catastrophe, and when we're talking about that, we're not overestimating, mm. um, underestimating the damage. I think in in the state of Victoria, the biggest export earning industry is education. Gosh. Yeah, and it's the third biggest export industry in Australia. So, yeah, we export a lot of things like iron ore and coal, um, <laughs> but the but the third biggest export industry um, for Australia is education. And we're back to to geography, I guess, in that you've got you know fewer but really quite large universities, yeah. whereas our base of universities in, in the UK is, is is pretty broad. And if I say we could afford to lose some, what I mean is, you know, some institutions could go under and those students could still be picked up elsewhere without enormous difficulty, obviously be terrible for people in those institutions. Um, but yeah, we're in a different position. But I, I think, you know, it's, 
there is a real sense here i'm i'm picking up i think of anger um towards kind of rent seeking activities and particularly you know the the privileging of you know private landlords most in the uk sorry in england certainly i'm not i'm not sure about uh scotland um northern ireland wales but in england certainly the vast majority of university accommodation is is private sector now yeah Um, and there is like a real sense of well, those private sector landlords must get their money, but you know it doesn't really matter what happens to the students, and that's I think genuinely how people are feeling, and I, I have a lot of sympathy with that. Yeah, I mean one of the other things that happened um, here in Australia, which was you know very decisive action by the federal government early on to provide income support across entire sectors, and and it created a new. Um, a new payment called JobKeeper, which was essentially to provide a ballast so the economy didn't go down the toilet, right? Australia has not had a recession in three decades. And um, so we've had uninterrupted economic growth. Um, Even during the financial crisis, Australia did not technically enter the recession. And um, so we've just had our first recession. (laughs) And um, to, to try and prevent the sort of catastrophic effects of that government started to make, you know, income payments to people. They didn't have to go to work different to unemployment benefits. Um, and basically organisations were eligible if they'd lost a certain amount of their income, they could apply then for this um, job keeper payment, which would provide them with the ability to continue to pay staff and keep them attached to the organisation. Now, that was a fantastically um, successful um program it's been you know extraordinary it's kept a lot of people with income um, it's about to run out um, but the the federal government three times amended the legislation to exclude universities from that mm. and I mean, and, and so we have seen this absolute bloodbath in universities of um of uh we haven't had a lot of forced redundancies yet, the forced separations, but we've had a lot of voluntary redundancies where people can put their hand up and exit. And we've had a lot of people who are on short-term contracts not renewed and a lot of casual um, people who were attached to the university just gone. And as I said, the, the estimate is hard because the numbers are, are very difficult, but the best estimate so far are about 17,000 people. Um, it's extraordinary. I mean, that is a bloodbath, yeah. Yeah. If it was any other industry, there'd be, you know, decisive action by by government to ensure that the job losses didn't happen or industry support packages or or so on. But it's just, um, it's been incredible to to watch that happening. And bringing maybe that issue back to um, where you were talking about starting off some of your academic career around contracting and procurement, um, we currently have uh, something called the Good Law Project taking the government to court for some of the procurement processes um, that, or, or not processes that have been yeah. gone through uh, in terms of spending, you know, billions of pounds yeah. um, without proper tendering processes you know and i think there's the sense of sure in an emergency you need to buy as many masks and stuff as you can and you know we kind of get that and perhaps there isn't time for a full tender panel and an og procurement and and all that sort of stuff um but this is starting to look unbelievably dirty um 
you know, and there are so many cases of what appear to be, you know, flagrant letting contracts to people who are either married to members of the Conservative Party or have given them a lot of money. And, you know, it, and that's not just sort of tribal, I don't like the Tories politics. I mean, it's just it's just looking appalling. Um, have you guys managed to escape some of that or are we still start are you starting to see some of it emerge or, or what's your view yeah i mean i mean it's a classic sort of disaster capitalism story isn't it what's happening yeah. or um that you know the crisis arrives and and many of our regular processes you know either fall apart or have to have to be subverted to get stuff done and uh certainly that's i, I don't think that we've seen yet um that experience here in Australia. That's not to say that we haven't had some some real issues. So, for example, the federal government paid several million dollars for the procurement of an app that didn't really do anything, um, and which it, you know sort of implored everybody to to download um, and and so on, and said you know if everyone downloads the app, then we'll be out of this crisis. I mean, it was a it was a crazy <laughs> crazy marketing campaign to start with, but um, that that app I think has picked up no no case that contact tracers using pens and paper haven't picked up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Extraordinary waste waste of money. Um, but we've had I, I think some of those things will probably emerge. Let's say with a big big sort of scandal in in the state of Victoria has been the decision to contract out um, the hotel quarantine security to private firms. So we've just had um, a sort of judicial-style inquiry into that, which cannot identify where that decision was made. So I don't think it was made to curry favour with um with donors or husbands and wives of of um, of members, but we've got a, another problem, which is sort of non decision making. Like, who who actually like someone signed a contract, but who actually made the decision that it would be private security who would do that? Mm. Um, so we we haven't um, had those scandals yet. It's not to say that they won't emerge um, as time. Time goes on. Um, we've certainly had them in lots of um, other areas, particularly in, in areas around um, contracting for detention centres and so on, which Australia spends billions and billions of dollars on um, with very obscure processes. Um, and maybe that's a topic for another day. <laughs> Absolutely. Once again, you know, England leads and uh, Australia will be following <laughs> fairly soon afterwards. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask about Janine was just picking up on one of my earlier points I was suggesting around how Australia have done relatively well in terms of, of COVID um, and perhaps that was to do with operational capacity and that of course is one of the the three kind of pillars of of Mark Muir's um, public value framework um, and and you know there also clearly is, is a lot of you know kind of there's a strong government there which has 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 led this and and a lot of experience in i guess perhaps coming from the likes of the the SARS outbreak previously perhaps the experience of the Australian government is in dealing with um health pandemics is more i don't know more 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 current than than the experience within the UK i don't know but um You've done a lot of work on public value, and do you see that as 
as being a framework that could be used to analyse how different governments have responded to the COVID crisis and indeed how well they have done, relatively speaking, obviously. I mean, nobody's done well. It's all absolutely awful what's happened. But have you considered using that as a tool in looking at COVID? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. And in fact, I, I will be doing this live in, in a sense with my latest batch of ANZOG students who um, I think we've got 98 or 99 uh, coming into the cohort into our executive master's program they've just um just starting and they're going to do their first subject with me which will start in a few weeks called delivering public value and mm-hmm. um and of course how could you not be thinking about uh COVID at a time, time like mm-hmm. this and yeah. and connecting it to some of that so i'll have an, an opportunity to work with them um through that subject, looking through the prism of of public value and, and more broadly about value creation um, as well, and I think the the framework one of the great strengths of that framework is it's you know it's really adaptable. We can use it diagnostically, so we could layer it over the top of a situation and and look at where there might be particular strengths and weaknesses in different aspects of um, you know of, of the triangle. And I think the triangle as a sort of heuristic is really powerful. Um, you know, being able to say, for example, that we've got operational capacity issues or being able to say that, you know, um, we haven't managed to get legitimacy and support um, to pursue this action. How do we, how do, we try and uh, do that? Or, you know, what, what's the sort of value proposition of the, the approach that we're, that we're seeking to sort of run with? And, and I think... Um, it's a really powerful sort of tool to be able to, to do that, but also then to look prospectively, like what are we going to do, say, coming out of COVID? What did what did we learn from that? I mean, one of the things that has been really interesting um, to, to think about in the COVID sort of era is that operational capacity sort of question. And I wrote a piece for Public Management Review that came out last year, which um, really looked at, and it was, it was a think piece, it wasn't a sort of, um, you know, it wasn't reporting on empirical research. It was really what does COVID mean for the field? And, you know, the capacity question to me was just front and centre. It had to be, you know, the big question that mm. we ask, have we actually still got systems that can deal with this? And and for much of Australia's relative success um, at, at this stage, uh, I think that COVID has shown us extraordinarily sort of capacity deficits in our system and we've been um i think on some some level extremely lucky and um and i say that particularly in the state where i am where we had the big outbreaks i mean we're lucky we're far away um we still have big cities with high densities i think a lot of people forget that Mm. about australia they think that it's this giant landmass which it is um and that we're sort of equally spread out in fact you know melbourne has five million people um very close quarters and and so the spread there was very very quick um and you know other other cities on the eastern seaboard are the same but the the heuristic of that that strategic triangle i think is really useful in being able to give us a tool to to do some diagnostic work and um and really really look at that i mean you could you could apply that say in the US and say how was it that experts were not able to to manage into that authorizing environment, you know. Um, what were some of the blockers there that 
that meant that that expertise, you know, was not being picked up and, and how, you know, we might have had all of the talk about value being created and everyone will get tested and so on, but we had no operational capacity to do it. And I yeah. think, you know, it's something that Biden and Harris have talked about coming into the White House. They've said we actually just saw that there was nothing. Nothing was yeah, developed, yeah. No, yeah. no plans, nothing. And so for all of the sort of value story that government was telling about how it was going to, you know, whip COVID's butt or whatever was happening at that time, um, it, it, there was nothing there. There was no operational capacity to deal with that in any way. So I think it's a really powerful tool and I suspect most people as we go forward will will really link that to the operational capacity question, what does it mean? But, you know, the other parts of, of the triangle are equally important in thinking about um, about where we go and I'll, I'll get the chance to to do that in real time with people who have been, you know, at the front line of dealing with this in a few weeks, which will be really That's terrific. excellent. Yeah, yeah that's excellent. I, I, um, I'm going to give a, a quick shout out to one of your more recent publications, which is in International Journal of Public Administration, where you do talk about public value and and asking some questions about the extent to which it's it's been um, accepted, I guess, as a concept yeah. within public public administration. And and you you raise an important point i think that, that there's still so many debates still about public value and yet there clearly you know there, there clearly is potential significant potential in how how it can be used uh, as you describe as kind of umbrella concept mm. and i think looking at uh, a, a, an example like covid is, is is a great way to to potentially explore that in, yeah. in in some more detail so i'm really interested to see what your students come up with i think that'll be absolutely fantastic and it's probably something that could we could think about in terms of comparing the the uk experience again with 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 australia and looking at um yeah what 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 people in in the professions actually think about these 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 issues of of capacity, legitimacy, and value. Mm. So, yeah, I'm definitely um, looking forward to see what, what comes of that. And the New Zealanders, I mean, in the end, the New Zealanders seem to always get it right. Mm. I mean, yeah. Australians hate to say that, which is why we don't. <laughs> this is why we don't look to our, you know, our brothers and sisters very closely um, located next to us for all of the answers to our problems, and instead wait for them to be filtered. Um, through the UK and come back to us. And I always laugh about that when I'm in a classroom of, of people from Australia and New Zealand. I'm like, just, just short circuit this craziness <laughs> and just talk to the person sitting next to you. Hmm. Um, and, you know, they've, they've just done an absolutely extraordinary job. They're just incredible um, in managing COVID. And, and, you know, many people say, oh, it's a small population, far from anything. But, that you know, that's just the way that the community has um has responded and there's something about uh, the New Zealanders which is this this sort of community spirit mm. that is so mm. important and it was you know it's another thing I, I sort of mentioned in that um, paper and public management review this ability to to leverage I don't like to use that word in this context but um, to leverage that capacity, from community, I mean, we cannot deal with crises like COVID without um, people, you know, sort of buying into the project, 
Like we just we just can't. You can't um, absolutely yeah. have have a response, a credible response to something like a pandemic, with it getting people to engage in behavioural change, whether it's mm. being locked in, in their houses or whether it's washing their hands or wearing masks or you know restricting their movements and activities, you, you can't have it. And it's been one of the things that's been really at the core, I think, of the success, extraordinary success story um, of New Zealand and, and also of, of Australia as well, this sense of being able to tap that when it was needed. Yeah. One, one of the things that people have pointed to in, in looking at New Zealand and arguably some other countries as well, uh, I'm thinking particularly Germany, is the role of women in leadership, and yeah. uh, you know there there have been suggestions made that 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 is one of the key different differentiating features of countries that have done well is that they've had women in prominent leadership positions. Mm. Um, do you have thoughts, reflections on that? Yeah, I mean it's 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 been interesting, and I've seen that work, which is you know looking at comparing the the responses and. And so much of it, I think, is tied around leadership style and all of those women leading those nations, of course, are, are different. And um, mm. But the contrast must be between perhaps a more, um, you know, community-spirited approach to leadership versus a strong man approach to leadership. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the countries that have had catastrophic failure yeah. have tended to be... Um, run by authoritarian anti-science um, muscle men, right, uh, strong-arm men either already or in the making. And I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, I look at Jacinda Ardern, who is, um, you know, admired all around the world for her leadership across a whole yeah. range of crises that she's dealt with in her time, um, you know, natural disaster, uh, uh, um brutal you know massacre um mm. as well as covid and her ability to communicate mm. with with her community is extraordinary and and it's natural and she you know she gets on facebook or on instagram and does short little videos here i am we're all locked up at home as well this is how we're coping with it um you know she she speaks directly but but in a way which is which is very much of like we're in it together and we'll get yeah. through it. And and I think there's something something in that. You know, Angela Merkel, scientist, right? <laughs> in charge. Yeah. Now that helps. <laughs> and and I think um that, you know, she's just um there's a you know, there's this extraordinary contrast, I think, between those two sets of of um, political leaders and and I suspect you know our colleagues will be looking at that for a very long time to come you know is there something about leadership in a, in this type of crisis which is different to say a military crisis or you know how, how do those distinctive styles of leadership um, regardless of gender or perhaps attached to it really really play out but Jacinda Ardern you know watching from here often people will say can she be the Prime Minister of Australia but people are absolutely in love with her. I think mm. she's incredible. We we say some similar things, um, yeah. I think, here as well. Um, just sort of picking up on that, uh, I like this idea that, that 
at the heart of some of that is about how to communicate and obviously communication is a is a dialogic process it, it's it's listening as much as it is uh, telling um, and I think one of the things I really liked about what you were saying um, earlier about Australia's response or the federal response was about what can we learn from this you know rather than how can I the great man fix yeah. this it's how can we fix this and what can we learn from that experience and that that does speak to I think a really different attitude uh, amongst politicians and senior politicians do you do you think that that's something that is uh, i know we could say you know is that a more kind of female trait or a male trait i i I don't buy those sorts of kind of gross generalizations but there are often truths hidden in those things about how men and women are socialized to kind of behave um what what has been your experience being um, a, a leader who is a woman in HE um, and in working with politicians and in working with civil servants and stuff? I'm sort of interested maybe in, in some of your reflections about those things. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, um, it's an interesting one because at different stages of my career, I think it's been really, really different. So when I was at... Australian National University, for example, there was virtually in the school I was in, which was a big school, um, there was virtually no senior women. So I came to the school as a as a lecturer, became a senior lecturer there. Um, there was one female professor, and there was zero associate professors or or reader level in a school of about eighty faculty. Now, to me, okay. this was this was in a sense the place where I really cut my teeth as an academic and so it was a very different environment and um, I took up a leadership position in that school uh, quite junior and quite young and that was an interesting interesting dynamic Mm -hmm. because the the rest of of the people on our school executive were all um, certainly the academic people who were on that were all um, men and um, they were almost all of them, I think. Only one of them was not a professor. So I was junior and female um, and young all in one package. And I remember being in the first what we called kitchen cabinet, which was sort of an inner circle of that um, group. And I remember being quite forthright about something, which is sort of my, my nature and um, sort of being told to check my tone in a way, um, which was an interesting <laughs> interesting that's that you know if i do it it's called leadership when you do it it's called being bossy and stroppy yeah 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 exactly so i thought that was pretty um interesting but um so as i as i sort of um uh, got promoted there i became an associate professor there again the only the only one and one one professor um and so it was really it was very strange because you find yourself on you know every hiring committee um which you know, some people shy away from. I think is one of the most important jobs in in academia because you get to choose your colleagues and to shape a school mm. and its culture and so on. So I, I actually always enjoy doing that. But other people find it onerous, and I appreciate that. Um, if you're the only one of some category to have to sit on every one of those committees, so um, I found that really strange. And then to just be the only one, and then I became a professor at the ANU just before I left <laughs> and um, 
and I think there was two of us, but there was a two female professors, but there was like a 20-year age gap. So I was quite young. I think I was 30, 38 years old or something. Um, and then I left and came to the University of Melbourne. And I came into a school which had equal numbers of male and female professors. And it was total Gosh. culture shock to me um, because I remember sitting <laughs> very early on sitting on a selection committee where we said, oh, hang on a minute, we need to find a man to sit on the committee. <laughs> and this was like no experience I'd ever, ever had because everyone was always mm. running around to find a woman to sit on a committee. But um, so I think that it, that to me was really, um, it was a shock in a really great way to find myself in a, in a place um, where in in the school, which was my sort of home school there, which had this really terrific, you know, and it had, a lot of work had been done um, to to get to that. And then I I was sort of working in a in a smaller um, school at the university in helping to create a new a new school there called the Melbourne School of Government, where um, I worked alongside of extraordinary women, Helen Dickinson and, and Helen Sullivan. Our corridor was, you know, literally Helen Sullivan, me and Helen Dickinson. Um, and it was just, you know, my, you know, one of my career highlights to date was to have the opportunity to work with this extraordinary group of women in a sort of startup mode, creating something new and, and different. And so, you know, I sort of went from being, lone lone wolf um and it was really interesting when i um i often will say when i um at various points in you know careers when you're talking with people i say i sort of cut my teeth in an environment where i was the only woman and so i picked up a lot of um i often say bad bad habits from 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 that (laughs) in in how to behave in in an environment where um you know, the culture is, is dominantly not the one that you might belong to. And so I picked up a few tricks from that um, and and use those at various points in time when it's when it's useful. But I I think for me um, the most important thing in, in all of that, and so I sort of ramble ramble on and, and ref, in reflective mode, um, has been, you know, how how you can use that privilege and I have felt very privileged to be to have a career I never imagined I would have because I didn't even know it really existed and I always feel extremely um lucky and and privileged to be able to do what it is that I get to do which is you know write and argue and and talk and um and so on about the things that I'm deeply passionate about um is is to make space for the others. And I think that's extraordinarily important. Um, and and to do that, you often have to agitate and you have to be willing to take a few hits along the way um, to make sure that other people get the chance that you had. I had extraordinary champions along the way and, um, and I feel that it's my job to pass that along. Men and women who have really shaped my career they've shaped the way I feel about academia they've shaped the way that I behave in that environment and have shown me the good the bad and the ugly of that world and and I feel a big commitment um 
to, to really opening up those opportunities to others and to making sure that they really get to live their story in that all of us are very different. We've come from different places, but we all care about what we're doing and we want to make a massive contribution and giving the chance um, to other people to do that to me seems to be almost the most important part of my job as a senior woman in that in that field. You've been listening to Public Service Podcasting with Russ Glennon, Ian Elliott and Karen Bottom.